Um, it's hard to listen um, to uh, a 14-point outline. <laughs> I- I'm aware of that. And uh, the reason for the, the vast number is because that's the number that we find in the text. In fact, uh, when I started my study into uh, Psalm 145, verses 8 through 21, my original sermon that I had had 20 three points, 23 reasons. And uh, as I just kind of refined it and kind of boiled some down into others and against it, we'll still cover all of the truth. Uh, but again, I told you this morning when I went out to, uh, to, to kind of break down Psalm 145 verses 8 through 21, I just started highlighting the reasons. I wanted to be able to enumerate them. And I realized as I highlighted, I basically highlighted every word from, from verse 8 through verse 21, except the conjunctions and, uh, and, and so forth. And so there's a lot there. And uh, if you have a piece of paper in front of you, uh, maybe share a pen with your neighbor. Uh, I think it'll help you track. And then more important than being able to digest the truth, I want you to take the truth home with you tonight. I really want you to be able to spend some time this week appropriating what you find uh, into your own life. Here's about about what you're going to find. We're going to walk through, we saw the beginning this morning that David told us, I will praise him. And he gave a couple reasons why he'll praise or how he'll praise. He's going to praise every day. Uh, He's going to praise him for who he is. And he's going to praise him to every generation. That's the commitment of David. But then in verse number eight, like I said, there's a giant shift that happens. And he begins to list out the reasons David says, hey, I'm going to praise and here's why. And uh, I want you to take that home this week. And I want you to spend time around your family. And I want you to spend time around the table. And I want you to spend time appropriating that into your own heart and life. Uh, What you're going to find is the reasons David wanted to praise God are great reasons that you and I should praise God. And they're great reminders. And sometimes that's all that we need as the saints of God. Just a reminder of the goodness of God. Just a reminder that our health and safety is from God. Just a reminder that he hears the children that call on him. And so my hope is not just for you to be able to follow along and digest with me, having a piece of paper in front of you, but also for you to be able to take it home. Now, we saw, like I said this morning, three I will commitments. And uh, that idea of I will is a declarative uh, and it's a, a statement of faith. You're saying, hey, whatever comes, I'm still going to do it. I decide right now that I will praise him every day of my life. And that's what we found in our text this morning. And I really do want us to revisit that idea as a a Christian, not just because it's the week of Thanksgiving, but because we are Christians, because we're children of God, that he has bestowed great blessings on us. And it is the duty of a Christian, both the privilege and the duty of a Christian, to offer praise to him because not just because it's Thanksgiving, but because he's worthy. And we developed that idea a little bit this morning. Uh, we only had the privilege of developing the first seven verses of the chapter, but I told you there's so much left. And let me just kind of sidebar for a second. I am so grateful. That's one of my favorite parts of the Bible is that there's always something else to learn. There's always more on the page than you might realize. And it's for that reason I want to encourage you as your pastor to develop a deep personal relationship with the Word of God because this book gets to go home with you, okay? Uh, you don't have to leave it in the sound booth. You can take it home with you. And uh, you can read it and study it and find what God has to say about it. And you can develop, like I was talking to Brother Ronnie, I said that. He went home and he just read the chapter. And man, in the chapter are the points of tonight's sermon. And you get the privilege of taking your Bible home and the privilege of taking the Holy Spirit home with you. And the Holy Spirit is given to you and I to guide us into all truth. The Word of God tells us in John 17, 17, His Word is truth. And so you get to go home. You don't 
maybe you get to go home with the pastor, but you get to go home with someone far better than the pastor. You get to go home with the Holy Spirit who can guide you into the Scripture. And so I hope you develop a relationship with the Word of God, a deep love. Uh, it's our portion. It's our inheritance as Christians. Uh, it is our guide. As we've been talking the last couple weeks, it's our guide to the likeness of our Creator. Uh, if you want to know what Jesus was like, He revealed Himself in the Word. And uh, yes, He came in the fullness of time and the fullness of the Godhead bodily dwelt upon Him, but the Word of God was given so that we could know what he said and know who he was and know who he revealed himself to be. So again, one of the things we find in the Bible that God desires for us to be formed into the likeness of, God desires for us to live a life. This book will guide us to living a life that is overflowing with praise. It is just part of being a Christian. Uh, We talked a little bit this morning. We didn't really lean into it, but if you're a football fan in here, you talk about your team. If you're a basketball fan or a baseball fan, you talk about your team. If you're a child of God, it ought to come out of the abundance of your heart. Your mouth can't help but speak about the goodness of God. You can't help but speak about the things that you've seen and heard and experienced and the goodness that's been bestowed upon us. And so God desires that we live a life that makes much of worship and praise. And so here in this chapter, like I said, we found three I will statements. There's more than three, but we kind of boiled them down. So for the sake of helping our serving crew, some of our folks are out of the 11 o'clock service. They're serving during the morning hour. And then we've got a lot of uh, new folks with us, visitors this evening. Let me just catch you up to speed just real quick. And all I'm going to do is back up and read the verses we read this morning, the first seven. So look with me in Psalm chapter 145, uh, verse number one. It tells us this is a psalm of praise written by David, uh, the man after God's own heart. Verse number one says, I will extol thee, my king, or my God, O king, I will bless thy name forever and ever. So we learned first this morning that David says, hey, I will praise God for who he is, not for what he's done. Now, we ought to praise him for what he's done because he's been good to us. And all of God's people said amen to that, right? He's been good to you. You've got health and strength. You may not have everything you want. You may not have the best of health, but you're here. You were able to make it tonight. And so God has blessed you. And you ought to praise him for what he's done, yes, But more importantly, the unchanging reality is that you ought to praise him for who he is. Because what he does for you may vary from season to season. He may recognize or he may may deem it necessary for blessing and he may deem it necessary for burden. Uh, But he never changes who he is. What he does changes from season to season, but who he is never changes. And David introduces this psalm of praise with an emphatic statement that I will extol. I'm going to lift him up. I will bless his name. I will bow down and worship him because of who he is. He's my God and my king. Verse number two says, every day will I bless thee and I will praise thy name forever and ever. And that was the second I will we saw. David said, I will praise God every day forever, regardless of what comes, regardless of what it costs, uh, regardless of what my work, my maker brings me through. I'm going to praise him every single day for the rest of eternity. I will praise him. And that's a good thing to get started on. You realize in heaven, we will be worshiping Jesus. Now I know like when I was a, a teenager in church, you'd hear that and you'd think, is that all we're going to do in heaven? I don't think so. You don't need to be worried about it, okay? You don't need to be worried about God's time management in heaven. Like, hey, uh, what's the next thing on the calendar? Uh, I, I don't know exactly how all that works, but I do know this. Praise will be a part of our eternity. And the Bible talks about how the four and 20 elders, they'll fall down before him and they'll worship him and declare him worthy. And so praise is a part of our everyday, uh, but it's also a part of our eternity. And, and David was committed to it both in this life and in the life to come. And then we, we uh, let, let's uh, jump into the last one. Praise him to all who would listen. We find that in verses three through seven. Look at it. It says, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised and his greatness is unsearchable. He said, I can't find the bottom of it. It's just so deep. One generation shall praise thy works to another and shall declare thy mighty acts. 
I will speak of the, thy, the glorious honor of thy majesty and of thy wondrous works. And men shall speak of the might of thy terrible acts. And I will declare thy greatness. There's a conversation going back and forth. People are talking about him. And David says, hey, I'm going to get in that conversation and declare his goodness. They shall abundantly utter the memory of thy, of thy great goodness and shall sing of thy righteousness. And so that was the message this morning. Go back and get the extended version. That's just the cliff notes. But verse number eight begins a shift of focus. Um, it shifts from a call to praise in verses one through seven to reasons for praise. It, it really is. It's, it's fascinating and it's full. And so I mentioned this morning that tonight's study is going to be this week's homework. And let me just kind of unpack what I mean by that. My hope is that in your hands are not just my sermon notes that, that you can follow along and fill in. My hope is what's in your hands will go home with you and you will be able to recognize certain things and be reminded of certain things that should cause you to worship him. Uh, there, are, there are four columns. There's two on the front and two on the back. The first three columns, the front and the one side of the back page, are David's list of things he's thankful for. David's list of things he's, man, this is why I'm going to praise him. This is why I'm going to worship him. But there's a fourth column on the far right side that says, give thanks. And this is meant for you to take a home and begin to join David in making a list of things you should be thankful for, that cause you to praise him for. Now, I told you that in the, this morning that David makes no claim to the completeness of this list. Psalm 45 can't house all the reasons we should be praising God, um, but the fact of the matter is, it's a, it's a reasonable start. Uh, he did tell us that his greatness is unsearchable. He, he couldn't create a list long enough. Uh, the poem or song captures it well. It says, could we with, the, uh, with ink the oceans fill and were the skies of parchment made? Where, where every stock on earth a quill and every man ascribed by trade. To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. You could write all, like every, every single square inch of space, and you'd still not be able to fill up the list of reasons that God has loved us and reasons that God is worthy of our praise. So we'll never finish the list, but that doesn't mean, listen, we shouldn't start the list, Okay. And so David, he, he kind of goes out in front of us and says, let me give you a bunch of reasons why you should praise God. And then my hope is that you take it home and with your family before Thursday, before Tuesday, you start writing down your own reasons that you should praise God. And if you want extra credit, and I don't know what the extra credit would be, you just have to take it up with Jesus, but you want extra credit, man, put some verses on there. Put some Bible verses. This is the reason I praise God. And here's the verse that says this is, uh, this is the, the reason. I would encourage you to take it seriously and to take it home and to make it your, your meditation and your bread this week as you work toward having a grateful spirit. And so David gives us a pretty good head start on this chapter, uh, but I do want you to take it home and fill out column number four yourself and bring it back on Tuesday night. So let's go ahead and pray. And then we're going to start filling in the blanks and I'm going to send you home to fill in your own blanks this week. So let's ask the Lord's blessing. Father, I need you, and I thank you that you're present with me, and you're present with the hearer today. I pray, God, that just through the, the, the working of the Word, and through the preaching of the Word, and the working of the Spirit, um, that uh, your people would be fed tonight. That, God, there'd just be a, uh, a holy anticipation about the service tonight. I, I pray that we would be eager, God, to hear and be reminded of the reasons that you are worthy of our praise. And uh, God, your worthiness never changes, it never diminishes. And uh, Father, we, we, I hope that we're growing in our, our understanding and our, our, uh, our just the, the vast concept of your worthiness and uh, that we really pursue living a life that's worthy of your worship and praise. And so Lord, I pray God you just meet with us tonight and uh, we'll give you the glory for it. In Christ's name we ask these things, amen. Now we're going to jump right in because we got 14 points, okay? And I trust that we'll try to be out on time, maybe a couple minutes over, and that'll be just fine. But verse 8 
right out of the gate actually possesses our first four. And uh, so if you're, now how many of you, be honest, be honest, I won't judge you, have already filled out some blanks? Raise your hand. Okay, good. You know that to me, what that means is that my notes are good. And here's what I mean. I don't mean that in a proud way. My notes are straight out of the scripture. Uh, we, just, we just filled out, basically, I, someone said, hey, good sermon. I didn't write this sermon. This is, this is David saying, hey, Christian, a future reader of the word of God, this is the reason you should praise. And it's right there in the text. But verse number eight possesses our four, our first four right away. Look at it. It says, the Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger and of great mercy. That's four back to back to back to back qualities of our God. And we can spend an entire Sunday on each and every one of those truths, but fill your blanks in there. And I left some, some blank lines for you to kind of fill in some references or some thoughts on that. Uh, I do want you to know verse number eight, the four qualities, uh, they're very similar to each other. They're very much in the same family. Uh, it really speaks to the idea that God who could judge us doesn't. And that's kind of the heading of the first four, that God who could, who has the power, who has the, the, uh, the right moral standing to be able to execute judgment, does not judge us. He's gracious. And that's the very first one. The Lord is gracious. Let me give you the definition for gracious. It's a funny word. If I asked you right now, just think with me, don't, don't do it out loud, but if I asked you right now to give me a definition for gracious, I found it, at least in my understanding, to be one of those words that you're like, yeah, I know what it means, but like, I don't know where I would like start defining it. Like I'd be like, hey, that's a gracious person. What makes them gracious? Oh, they're, they're, they're grace-filled? It, it seems a little bit abstract to me because we, we understand what gracious is. But let me give you the definition. It means someone who is favorable, kind, benevolent, and merciful. Here's the key. Disposed toward forgiving offenses and imparting merit, unmerited blessing. That's what graciousness means. It means someone who has a disposition toward forgiving offenses. Now, some people in the room, you're far more forgiving than other people. Some in the room, you're far less forgiving than other people. Uh, God has the disposition of being gracious. He is the one who has a natural bend toward wanting to offer forgiveness and wanting to offer pardon and wanting to be merciful and uh, bestow unmerited blessing. Having that disposition toward forgiveness is something each of us should be grateful for. This week, as you remember, why should I praise God? Well, because his disposition toward you is one of, of unmerited favor, one that tends toward forgiveness rather than judgment, one that says, hey, come, uh, let us reason together, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. I'm going to give you an opportunity to be forgiven and rather than being judged. And that's the graciousness and the goodness of our God. And that's something we ought to rejoice in. You know, weirdly enough, sometimes this happens in our life. We are so grateful for God's graciousness toward us and irritated at his graciousness toward other people. I'll give you a biblical example, Jonah. Jonah and Brother Magno have done a great job explaining that book uh, in the first half of his uh, Wednesday night series and uh, talks about this idea that Jonah knew. He said, I knew you're a gracious God. I knew you'd forgive the Ninevites. That's why I didn't want to go. And some of us are like, we're so grateful he's gracious to us and so irritated that he's still giving mercy to this world and still giving mercy to the, the, the politician on the other side of the aisle and still giving mercy to that, you know, neighbor that won't ever turn their music off. And man, I just wish the ground would open and swallow them. Thank God he has a disposition bent toward mercy and toward forgiveness of offenses. And so that's number one. We ought to praise him because the Lord is gracious. That's, that, that should be something that produces a measurable amount, measurable amount of praise. Number two, also found in verse four, that the Lord is full of compassion. And I got to give you another definition for this. It means to love tenderly. Having a temper or disposition toward pity. 
inclined to show mercy, merciful, having a heart that is tender and easily moved by the distresses, sufferings, wants, and infirmities of others. And and that differs only slightly uh, from the first one where he is gracious. Now, the Bible says that he is compassionate in that he he is touched, listen, by the feelings of our infirmities that he knows what it's like to be a human being walking through the hardships of life. And because he walked this world, and because he lived this life, he has this ability to be compassionate toward us and make a difference in our life, and he is touched by those feelings. Um, He has a bend toward pity, which is grateful, which I'm grateful for, because I'm fairly pitiful, right? Uh, I need a lot of pity. Uh, The decisions that I make or the the way that I walk at times does not deserve pity, but necessitates it. And, And that ought to produce praise in our heart this week. That be, it's by the mercies of God we're not consumed. Uh, by the fact that you're still standing is a, is a credit not to your great goodness, but to his great compassion on us, uh, that he, he, uh, he is slow toward that anger, which is the next one. The Bible says that he is slow to anger there in verse number, uh, uh, verse number eight. This is actually a unique, I, I, I didn't expect this. I don't know what it'll mean to you, but I found this and I figured I'd give this to you. Uh, the phrase slow to anger is actually a Hebrew figure of speech. If you look up the direct definitions of the two words, the Hebrew words uh, are irik uh, apium, okay? Now, don't, don't, uh, don't check me on that, Brother Hunter, okay? Uh, but uh, those are the two Hebrew words, and here's what they mean. It means long of nose. Nobody knew that, right? I didn't know that. I looked it up this week. Now, here's why. It's just a figure of speech. We have weird figures of speech in our language. Don't you know that, right? Pretty as a peach, go break a leg. Like, that doesn't sound like you're wishing that person good luck, but it's just a figure of speech. This is a figure of speech in the Hebrew language, and, and here's where it comes from. There are multiple times throughout the Old Testament in the Hebrew, multiple times where the Bible talks about that his, uh, maybe it's Goliath, or in, in another instance, there's a, a couple of different uh, times where God, the Bible says that his Anger burned in his nose would be the the direct translation of that. And here's what God is saying in that he is slow to anger. He is long of nose in that it takes him a long time before his anger is seething. It takes him a long time before he is furious. Now, the Bible does say that he's angry at the wicked every day, but praise God, his anger doesn't burn hot quickly. And uh, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but we all know or perhaps are a person with a short fuse or were a person with a short fuse. I would say, I think I can say I was. I I hope I'm not currently a person with a short fuse, but I certainly was a person with a short fuse. And uh, you could get angry real easy. You could tick me off pretty easily. And uh, praise God that he who has all power is slow to anger and not quickly provoked. Because how many of you know your living at times certainly provokes the Lord? And uh, he is slow toward that anger and he is not quick uh, to, to meet out judgment. And thank God for that. And so when you're thinking this week, man, what has God ever done for me? I'm, I'm trying to go around the table and think of something I'm grateful for, of something to praise him about. Well, praise him because he's slow to anger. Uh, otherwise, you and I would be absolutely consumed. And I told you those first, these first four really do fit in the same family. And that's the, the last one there. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger, and of great mercy. And those are the blanks there. We've already seen that his disposition is toward mercy. So what, what is this saying that the previous ones haven't taught us? Well, I would emphasize the word great. We've already seen that he's full of mercy and bends toward pity and and, and bends toward a tender heart and that he's slow to anger. But I, I want to focus in on that word great. Great means remarkable, out of the ordinary in degree, magnitude, or effect. There are people who are slow to anger. There are people who are bent toward mercy or bent toward pity. But there is no one that has that great of a degree of mercy, that great of a degree of compassion, that great of a degree of slowness toward anger. And so he is great in mercy. When others would have no mercy, he will. When others would throw the first stone, he doesn't. When, he, when others refuse the tax collector, 
he didn't. When others would have let Peter keep fishing and throw away his life after the resurrection, he went after him. Uh, he would have given up, when others would have given up on you and I, he didn't because he is great in mercy. He doesn't just possess mercy. He, he, he possesses an inordinate amount, uh, a great sum of mercy. And these ought to, Christian, reflexively produce praise in the people of God. This week, you ought to be, man, what, what, what am I going to leave off my list? There's so many things to praise God for. And that's what David is rolling through here. And we got a couple more to get to. So let's keep reading in verse number nine and find our fifth reason. And I think in your notes, you have a verse reference, so that should help you. Verse number nine says, the Lord is good to all. And that's your blank right there. And his tender mercies are over all his works. So listen, I love this. And I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to follow directly what the scripture says to kind of try to bring out this truth. The Bible doesn't say that God is good to all humans. He says he's good over all his works, that he does good in his tender mercies over all his works. There's not a corner of creation that God has forgotten. He is so mindful and present in the, the reality of, of all creation. The sparrows, the Bible says, cannot even fall from the sky without God taking notice. He clothes the field, the Bible says, which today is and tomorrow is cast in to the oven. Psalm 36, verse 6 uh, says this, O Lord, thou preservest man and beast. He is in total, complete control and care over all creation, which should cause us a deeper sense of praise when we realize that we are the center of his creation. We are the one that he imparted his likeness to. We are the, the Bible says that we are the apple of his eye. And the Bible also admonishes us that we ought to be the, he ought to be the apple of our eye. And so Luke chapter number 12, you don't need to turn there, but Luke chapter 12, verse six says this, are not five sparrows sold for two farthlings and not one of them is forgotten before God, but even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not therefore, ye are more valuable than many sparrows. Listen, his care over all creation is a reason you should will yourself toward praise. Uh, Notice how that's asserted right here in our text. Look at verse 10. All thy works shall praise thee, O Lord. So listen, all of creation ought to be praising God. And I think about this, if the hills and the rocks will cry out praise to God, certainly his image bearers ought to. Certainly his children redeemed through the blood of Jesus, they ought to. We ought to be constantly praising God. Psalm 69 verse 37 says, let the heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moveth therein. God has an expectation that all creation praise him, that all creation follow the ordered plan he's created. Have you ever recognized that the, the, the wind does what it's told to do and the sea does what it's told to do? It was given a mark that it couldn't pass and it's not passed that. Uh, it's, it's been uh, the, the creatures in the ocean do what they're told to do. The only rogue portion of creation that refuses to do what it was created to do, oftentimes, is us. They will praise. If Jesus would have let them, the rocks would have cried out. But you and I struggle with this this idea of praise. Look at verse 10 again. All thy works shall praise thee, O Lord, and thy saints shall bless thee. So this is is two things. He says, hey, I'm expecting creation to praise me, and I'm expecting my saints to praise me. I'm expecting the, uh, the saints to bless my holy name. Now, verse number 11 possesses our sixth reason for praise. And you're doing a great job with me. I know we're moving kind of quick, but verse number 11 says, they shall speak of the glory of thy kingdom. Sixth reason to praise this week and every week hereafter is because his kingdom is glorious. His kingdom is glorious. Can you just get ahead of me on that? Let your mind's imagination move forward into the glory of God's kingdom. Listen, this one, perhaps above all other reasons, causes comfort to my heart that we are going toward a day that all things will be remade. 
that the kingdom of heaven will be here on earth, that this whole thing will pass away. Uh, He'll bring down new Jerusalem and he will dwell with us and we will dwell with him. We are moving toward an absolutely glorious kingdom. Now, listen, I'll take every chance I can to make this statement and I make it often, but I want to remind our people, heaven will repay everything the curse has taken from us. Everything. And again, I'm going to beat that drum until Lord Jesus takes me home or, or uh, uh, you know, he comes back. But I want all of God's people to rem- remember that, yes, this earth exacts a hefty toll. There are seasons where life is just difficult. There are seasons where you just need to endure hardness as a good soldier. But understand that when that kingdom comes and he is king again here on earth and he puts all the enemies under his footstool, that we will then physically be a part of a kingdom that can only be described in one word, and that word is glorious where every loved one that was buried is resurrected, where every physical ability we lost under the curse is regained, where every tear caused by the curse, Jesus said, blessed are they that mourn for they shall be comforted. That kingdom again is glorious. And I want you to praise him for that this week. I want you to praise him that this is not it. This is not what we're aiming for, right? Uh, This world is not our home. We're just passing through. Our treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. We're pilgrims and strangers on a journey through this life, moving toward a kingdom that is not yet fully come. And so take time this week around the dinner table on Monday. Don't just wait for Thursday, but around the dinner table and cast your mind on that kingdom. I'd, I'd encourage you moms and dads to ask the question, hey, what's something you're looking forward to about heaven? What's something you're looking forward to about Jesus, right? How many of you, you guys, your families, you have these weird conversations like, if you could have the largest candy in the world, what would you get? Like, I'd have a pool full of gummy bears, right? We have those conversations. They're kids. We let them have it. We got young kids. I think it's also, I think it's probably more important or certainly more important to have conversations about heaven. What's something you're looking forward to, to seeing Jesus? I can't wait to hear his laughter. I don't know what it sounds like, but I'm sure it's glorious. I can't wait to see the color of his eyes. I can't wait to get into heaven and see the pearly gates. I can't wait to see how pure gold streets are see-through. I can't wait to see all that. I can't wait to be a part of that because it makes the suffering of this life a little bit more bearable and it certainly makes my heart tend toward praise because he's preparing something for me where moth and rust cannot corrupt and thieves can't break through and steal up there. They're not gonna corrupt anything. We live in such a corrupt kingdom down here, but someday face-to-face we'll live in a kingdom that is described as glorious. Now jump back into verse number 11 and we'll grab our seventh reason there at the end. It says, they shall speak of the glory of thy kingdom and talk of thy power. So number seven, he is worthy of of our speech and our praise and our our prayer because he is, there's the blank, powerful. Now, verse 12 restates this exact idea. So again, this is where things kind of, you kind of condense some things from 23 to, to 14 points. Look at 12. To make known to the sons of men his mighty acts and his glorious majesty, the glorious majesty of his kingdom. So listen, you and I have a God who possesses immeasurable power, that he is the sovereign over all of the earth. He brought all of creation into existence by just the breath of his mouth. I love that verse in Psalms. It says, and he made the stars also. Just kind of an afterthought. Our God is so powerful. And yet, while he is king and Lord over all of the universe and pays attention to every bird and the grass of the field and he feeds the beasts and the ravens, you'll see some of those verses in a second. While he does all of that, he is still wonderfully mindful of you. He's still wonderfully mindful of what's in your bank account this, this Thanksgiving and Christmas. He's still wonderfully in control of what the doctors haven't even discovered and told you yet. 
He is the sovereign God over all things. And he loves you and he hears you and he has promised to never leave you nor forsake you. He never promised that there wouldn't be, you wouldn't live under the curse. We still live under the curse. He never promised you there won't be hardship. That's part of it. All that live godly shall suffer even persecution. Uh, the hardship of life is a part of the curse. By Adam, sin passed upon all and death came with it. And we live under the curse still until King Jesus comes back and that glorious kingdom is here. But even now, under the, the, the reign of death, even now under the reign of the curse still, in what's left of it after the cross, we still have a God who is powerful over all things. And listen, I'm trying to pack your bag this week for praise. Uh, these are things that we ought to just remind ourselves. Even if you just picked one or picked three a day and just focused in, again, you're gonna write your own list. I hope that you don't just take David's and go with it, though I think it would be sufficient. I think we should create our own list. Well, let's grab the eighth reason found in verse 13, okay? It says, thy kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and thy dominion endureth throughout all generations. You know what David's trying to remind us? Is that God is in complete control. That his kingdom never will and, and never has ended. So it's, I, think, I think what you should be putting there, your blank is end. His kingdom has never and will never end. He holds total dominion. That's, those are the blanks. I think I said it a bit different. So number eight, the reason we should praise is that his kingdom has never and will never end. He holds total dominion. Now, there are, there are kind of two parts to this, um, uh, that, that, uh, that amazing kingdom that we wait for. Number one, it, 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 never, it will never go away. Number two, the reason it'll never go away is because it never ceased. Uh, he is still in complete control. We talked about this last Sunday night, that even after the fall, the dominion of Jesus was not compromised. He is still in control. And listen, even though the kingdom of God and man was here at once and then broke, that kingdom still exists. And that kingdom is coming. And that kingdom comes with its king. When Jesus comes back, he brings the kingdom with him. I uh, think about that. When John the Baptist saw Jesus, he says, uh, he, he says that behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. This is the kingdom. You think about what Jesus tells to Nicodemus in John chapter three. He's, he says, listen, you're missing the kingdom of heaven. It's me, I'm sitting in front of you. And so that kingdom has never and will never end. Uh, we might live in a world where things get shaky down here, right? We gotta rebuild our you know, society. We gotta rebuild the economy. Heaven has not lost a single brick. Uh, there's not been a single moment of rust that took out a stairwell or anything in heaven. It is perfectly preserved along with the dominion of Jesus. God has retained all authority to himself. And someday again, I rejoice in the fact that he will physically rule here on earth. And think about this. This is King David saying this. And David's saying, I can't wait till I'm not king and he is. Well, I can share that, right? I can, I can share that emotion. I can't wait till I am not the, the physical leader of God's people at Faith Baptist Church. I cannot wait to sit down and let Jesus teach us. I cannot wait to sit down and let Jesus direct worship. I can't wait for, for Jesus to be in complete control of it. We're not going to mess up the slides or tell any corny jokes in the morning services. When Jesus is in charge, this thing's going to roll flawlessly, and we're going to direct all praise and worship, and we're going to sit down and inherit the goodness of our God, and he's going to rule and he's going to reign, and I can't wait for that. There'll never be another election night. There'll never be another government shutdown. There'll never be incompetence or empty promises. His arrival will remove in full the curse of sin. So let's keep reading and listen into the next reason. We're kind of moving a little faster these last ones. Verse number 14 tells us this, that the Lord upholdeth all that fall and raiseth up all those that be bowed down. So number nine, reason to praise, we have a God who lifts the fallen. Now, you might describe yourself either now or in the past as that. There's certainly been seasons where I've fallen and I can't get up. Uh, the Bible talks about this. I love this word, and we're, gonna, we're probably going to see it this Christmas, where the angel comes to, to Mary and he says, be not cast in your mind. 
Now, that word cast is something we don't understand. We don't live in an agrarian or a, a, a farming setting. The way that it works with those cattle is if they become cast, they would die. Uh, basically, if an animal leans on its back, a cow or a sheep, if it le- lays on its back, it, it, it'll bloat and it'll die. That's the word cast. It's, it's rolled over and it can't get up. And the angel says to Mary, hey, don't be cast in your mind. You're, you're receiving good news. And we have a God who, when you are cast, you are down and cannot get up. There is some circumstance that is outside of your control to change or to will it better. Uh, he is a God who lifts the fallen. And that ought to be something that produces praise from us. That ought to be something we look back and say, man, I had fallen into to, to some, some sin or some vice. And Jesus lifted me up and he picked me up and put my feet on a solid rock and he established my goings. That's That's the God you and I have. And that ought to produce this reflexive praise that he's worthy of. Number, verse 15 and 16 are going to bring us to our 10th reason. So look at it. It says, The eyes of all wait upon thee, and thou givest them their meat in due season. Thou openest thy hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. So we have a God who supplies for all living things. That's that's your blank there. Uh, Again, I love that he doesn't just say all human beings. He is showing us the vast scope of his control and love for all of creation. He made all of creation and said it was good. And he said the animals were good and the land was good and the animals in the sea were good. And then he made man and what did he say? He said that it was very good. He loves human beings. He made us image bearers, but he also loves all creation. He is the sustainer of all life. Psalm 147, you're probably close by. You might be able to see it without turning the page. Verse 9 says, He giveth to the beasts his food and to the young ravens which cry. He provides the animals for the the trash birds. (laughs) Isn't that awesome? Now, a raven is not the most beautiful creature, right? Can we all agree on that? Not your favorite bird, right? You're, nobody's going to be eating raven for Thanksgiving this Thursday, right? It's, it's a relatively unclean animal, even by today's standards, right? In the Old Testament, I'm not sure if they ate it or not, but I know for sure we don't, unless you're from West Virginia. Brother Grace tried to get me to eat raven a couple times. Um, I'm not going to do it, but God provides that bird, even a bird that we would say, oh, that's gross. God says, yeah, I'm looking after it. I'm taking care of that. And he's taking care of you and I too. And he's looking after you and I, all that live, all that he is, supplies all living things. That means, listen, the saved and the lost, he supplies for them. The believer and the antagonist who doesn't like, or who hates God, he is looking after them. Even the raven. Look at verse 17, we'll find our 11th one. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and holy in all his works. Number 11, reason for praise is there is no wickedness in him at all. None. There is no selfishness in God. God is not aggressive. He's not partial or unkind. He is not a liar. He is not an exaggerator. He is not unfaithful. He is not bitter. He is not fearful. He is not unjust. Listen, this is one of the greatest differences of the God of the Bible from every other historical false God that has ever been concocted by the mind of man. Uh, You think about the modern day religions, right? Or even the ancient religions of Greece uh, or of Rome. Those gods were lascivious. They They were wicked. They were vile womenizers. They were abusers of mankind. They would come down and subject man for their own pleasure and will. That's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible gave up his throne to come to us. He didn't come to us to take a throne. Now, he will someday as a rightful heir to all. Uh, but you think about even Allah of the, of the Quran. The, 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 uh, the false god Allah of the Quran is a hate-filled, vile god who, who champions murder and rape and all manner of conquest and control and you know, just destruction. But that's not the god of the Bible. 
If you could possibly search the whole of God, which you couldn't because his greatness is unsearchable, but if you could possibly search the goodness and greatness of God, you would never find a shred of injustice or evil. You couldn't look in every corner of God, but if you could, you'd never find a single shred of wickedness. Now we're coming in for a landing here, so we're moving toward the end. Look at verse 18 for number 12. The Lord is nigh unto all that call upon him, to all that call upon him in truth. We have a God who answers when we call. Listen, should his people call on him in truth? Notice that caveat, right? Uh, the Lord is nigh unto all them that call upon him, to all that call upon him in truth. He will answer you. If you're a saved person, you call out to God in truth, he's going to answer you. If you're here and you're lost and you call out to God in truth, he's going to answer you. Uh, listen, no one who calls upon God goes to voicemail. Um, I, I, we weren't theological as kids. We didn't go to church. We, we really didn't. And I remember, I used to think that heaven was like an answering machine. <laughs> Did anybody think like that? I, 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 would, I would leave the message like, all right, Lord, I know you're getting to this later. And uh, I know you can't hear it right now because other people are probably praying. But when you get to my, my prayer, would you do X, Y, and Z? I had great faith, but not according to knowledge, right? I, I prayed every single day the same prayer over and over, vain repetitions, not the way you should pray. I was lost, okay? And, uh, but here's the thing. When you call on God, he hears you. You're not going to interrupt him if I'm praying. He can hear you and he can hear, he can hear me at the same time. And what a good God that he hears us. When we call on him, he's never sending us to voicemail, right? Let's keep reading. The final two are meant to be a contrast, and uh, they're found in verse 19 and 20. Uh, verse 19 says, he will fulfill the desire of them that fear him. He, uh, he also will hear their cry and save them. So number 13, the reason for praise is he shows favor on those that are his. Praise God for that. I love favor. I think favor is one of the most underrated uh, aspects of Christianity. You ought to pray for favor. Favor is simply this. God just gives you a little bit extra to take care of you. Uh, I, I was uh, talking to one of our church members who just traveled, and there was all kinds of problems, and there was a bunch of, you know, mild crises that were happening, and it was like, man, this thing worked out, and man, this person showed grace to us, and this person showed grace. You know what that is? Favor. That's God looking down on his kids saying, well, those are my kids. I, I'm going to take care of them. Now, God's not a respecter of persons, but he will give favor. And that ought to be something you pray for. You ought to pray for favor when you're witnessing to the lost or to coworkers. You ought to say, Lord, would you help them have favor toward me so I can win their heart, so I can share with them the gospel truth. Favor is a good thing, not a bad thing at all. You should desire favor, but notice the contrast in verse 20. The Lord preserveth all them that love him, but all the wicked will he destroy. So number 13 was that God shows favor on those who are his. And number 14 is that the Lord is fair to all those who are not his. Now, we as Christians do not want God to be fair to us. Fair means you get what you deserve. If we got what we deserve, we'd end up in hell. But by grace, he's favorable toward us. He's not fair toward us. But to those who reject his son, he will be fair. He will give them what the law necessitates. The wages of sin is and was and will always be death. God is the judge of the universe has one. Think about a judge, right? We've used this illustration before in soul winning, but think about a judge. A judge has one job and that's not to make you like him. Uh, that's not, his job is not to make your, you feel good. Uh, the, a judge, if you're sitting in any kind of court, traffic court, small claims court, you know, whatever it is, the judge is sitting up there and his job is not to, not to placate to you. His jo job is not to make you feel loved and special and tell you how awesome you are. The judge has one job and that's to uphold the law. If you're innocent, it's his job to uphold the law. This person's innocent, they should get to go free. You want a judge to do his job. If you're innocent, you want that judge to let you go because the law says you should be free. 
But if you're guilty, the law says there's a penalty, and his job is not to make you like him, it's to uphold the law. God is the judge of the universe, has one responsibility, and that is to uphold the law. And so when he sends someone to hell, he's not being unfair. In fact, he's being fair. We deserve it. We start out with a sin nature and we choose sin ourselves. And now we are guilty and the wages of that sin is death. And God is a just God must uphold that standard of righteousness. And therefore he will judge us. And for just a moment, let me separate myself from that. As a Christian, I am grateful that God judges sin. And that's hard. It's such a mixed bag, isn't it, as Christians? We want God to judge. We want, we want you know, even so come Lord Jesus. And we want, we want the kingdom to come. But we also at the same time realize that when his kingdom comes, Man, that great white throne is, is shortly thereafter. And judgment's going to come. And so listen, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. We know that God is a judge and a just judge at that, but he's also a merciful redeemer who sent his son, not to condemn the world, but the world through him might be saved. And so what a blessing and what a praise he is worthy of that he is fair in his treatment. He's never unjust. He's never exacting more than is deserved. He is, uh, he is an austere God who keeps meticulous records and, and measures out the same except those who've received Christ and the favor that comes with being a child of God. He's not fair to us. He's favorable toward us. But again, he is fair toward those who are lost. And I love how David closes out the chapter. It's kind of the bow on top. Look at it, verse 21. He says this, my mouth, almost as to say, because of those things, my mouth shall speak the praise of the Lord. And let all flesh, that's you and I today, bless his holy name forever and ever. There's never going to come a time, Christian, where your responsibility is not to bless his holy name. There's never going to come a day, no matter how dark it is and no matter how alone you feel, you and I are not responsible to praise him for who he is and for what he's done. Let's pray tonight.